Hi, I'm John Grise, also known as Uncle Rico, and I'm the next guest on On Screen and Beyond. On Screen and Beyond, an inside look into the entertainment world featuring interviews with people from the movie, TV, and music industry, news on upcoming TV and DVD releases, and the rumor mill. And now, here's the host of On Screen and Beyond, Brian Zemrak. Welcome. It is that time once again. It's time for another episode of On Screen and Beyond, the weekly show that keeps you updated on what's coming away as far as upcoming movies, remakes, sequels, and TV and movie DVD releases, as well as our interview segment with someone from the movie, TV, or music industry. This week, we got a fascinating guest coming away, John Grise. He was Uncle Rico in Napoleon Dynamite and uh, just so many other things he's done and and he's got a new film out called around june you got to see this because it's a great film and it's a dramatic role for him and he does a fantastic job in it you just got to see this if you get a chance and uh, he's going to be coming up in just a few minutes right here on on screen and beyond so hope you're going to stick around for that like i say he was in lost he was in the pretender he was in martin and it just goes on and on so john's coming up in a few minutes it's right here on On Screen and Beyond. Uh, thank you for the emails we've been getting. We got a lot of emails uh, talking about uh, the George Kennedy interview last week. Still playing catch up from being on vacation, but we got a lot of things coming your way. Email us at feedback at onscreenandbeyond.com if you have a chance, if you want to talk to me. Or you can turn around and like us on Facebook. And uh, that's it. Let's get right into it. And next, it's time for Remake Madness. Please hang up and try again. Remake Madness, well, a remake of Alfred Hitchcock's Suspicion is in the works, and you can look for Emma Watson, and she's going to star in a retelling of the Beauty and the Beast story from Del Toro. And also, Dwayne Johnson will star in Ratner's Hercules movie. It's a new production. It's going to start this fall, and it will hit theaters in 2014. That's it for Remake Madness. Coming up next on On Screen to Be On, upcoming new movies. Upcoming new movies, well, Susan Sarandon and Dwayne Johnson again will star in Snitch in 2013. Look for Bruce Willis. He's going to be in a film called Five Against the Bullet, an action thriller movie where Willis will play one of five bodyguards to a Mexican politician. And Steve Carell will star in a comedy called Magic Kingdom for Sale, Sold. He plays a lawyer who, after his wife and unborn child are killed in a car accident... Uh, he buys a Magic Kingdom for $1 million and finds out that it's in peril from an evil demon. It's, it sounds uh, comedy. I don't know. It sounds kind of weird. Anyways, that's it for upcoming movies. Next on On Screen to Be On, it can take you down to Sequel City and find out what's coming away as far as sequels right here on On Screen and Beyond. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Sequel City, well, Peter Jackson says he will be making... Tintin 2 after he finishes The Hobbit 
And look for Michael Bay. He's going to return to direct Transformers 4. And word is out that Bill and Ted's Adventure 3 has a completed script, and they're waiting for the go-ahead to make the film. So we'll see what goes on with that one. That is it for Sequel City. Coming up next on On Screen and Beyond, we're going to take a look at what's coming away as far as TV on DVD. TV on DVD, well, Tarzan Season 1, Part 1, and Tarzan Season 1, Part 2, will be available on March 13th from Warner Archives, and it's the 1966 series that starred Ron Ely. And the fifth and final season of Chuck comes to DVD on May 8th, and on April 10th, you can look for Adam 12, the final season, as it lands on DVD. That's it for TV on DVD. Coming up next, what's coming your way as far as movies on DVD? We got it right here on On Screen and Beyond. (laughs) Movies on DVD. Well, Chronicle lands on DVD and Blu-ray in May. And also in May, you can look for Man on a Ledge as it leaps into stores. And Project X with Thomas Mann comes to DVD and Blu-ray in July. That is it for Movies on DVD. Coming up next on On Screen and Beyond... John Grives is going to be joining us here, and John is one of those actors that every time you see him, he's like a chameleon. He just changes, and and you never know what he's going to be like, what he's going to act like, what he's going to look like. He's a fascinating actor, a great actor, and he has a new movie out, and it's called Around June. It's really an intense performance, and you've got to see this movie. It's called Around June. John Grise, he's coming up next right here on On Screen and Beyond. Of course, he was uh, Uncle Rico in Napoleon Dynamite. He was on The Pretender. He was on Martin. He was on Lost. And you just look at his credits. He just goes on and on and on, the things he's done. And uh, he's a great guy. He's coming up next right here on On Screen and Beyond. My guest today on On Screen and Beyond is an actor who has been on many TV shows, including The Pretender, Martin, Lost, and the animated Napoleon Dynamite, as well as numerous movies, including Napoleon Dynamite, as Uncle Rico. He now is one of the stars of the film Around June. It's John Grise. John, welcome to On Screen and Beyond. I'm very happy to be here, Brian. Thanks. John, looking over your list of films and TV shows you've been on and what you've got coming up, you, you are just one busy guy. Well, I, you know, I, I, I have been blessed to be busy at times. There are other times that I'm, it's, it's funny, it seems like I'm busy in clusters. And then, and then there's periods of time where I think, am I ever going to get busy again? <laughs> Which is better, the dizzy or not busy? (laughs) Dizzy. Exactly. To be or not to be, I don't know. Right. Now, around June, a new film that you're in, you you actually made it a couple years ago, but that's the way things work, that they they finally come your way. Tell us a little bit about it. Well, you know, first off, that's the nature of independent film, it seems, nowadays particularly, where the heyday of independent films, uh, at least in Hollywood, seems to have passed. Uh, in the sense that uh, distributors are fighting and clamoring to get the best uh, product, as they call it, to put out. Um, and so films that are real gems not see the light of a, of a movie screen. And luckily, there are films that, that actually slip through the cracks 
anymore, and that's uh, Around June would be one of those films. Mm-hmm. It's a, it's a, you know, it's an uncharacteristic film in the sense for me, in that I'm probably known more for doing uh, more comedy stuff. Right. Though, I, you know, I, I never really started out in this wacky business thinking that I was a comedic actor. I always <laughs> thought I was going to be like the next Robert De Niro or something. But I guess, you know, you look look at me in the mirror and, you know, you've got to change your attitude about that. So, but um, I would say, well, the story is, it's, it's a very complex story. And without giving too much away, it's really based around a, a, a complex relationship between a, a father and a daughter. And uh, Sumira Armstrong uh, plays my daughter. Mm-hmm. And she... Um, Feels, I, she feels obligated to stay at home when she should be out living her life. And part of that obligation is based on the fact that the character that I play, Murray, her father suffered a horrible accident years before. Uh, and in that car accident, uh, my wife, uh, Sumira's mo- uh, in the movie, mother, passed away. And so there's this sense of uh, needing to stay and protect her father. Unfortunately, there are some things about the accident that come to, be, to light litter, and you know that's the stuff I'm not going to give away. But right. yeah. it, it actually it, it complicates their relationship in such a way that um, the nature of their relationship is so complicated. I should say, in such a way that um, when these other things are revealed later, it actually r- really makes uh, makes it hard for. For, for both of them. Yeah. yeah. Now, like you said, people are used to seeing you in different roles than this, even though it's it's not that far from some of the other roles you've done over your career, but it seems like it's a very emotional film. Some of the but scenes... Are you saying, like, you, my, my roles are, like, troubled weird guy? Yeah, that was... <laughs> you are a very much of a chameleon, where I see you in different films... It's all the wigs. I'm bald. And you, you, yeah, I mean, it's like you're you're a different person every time I see you, and and sometimes I see you, and I don't even know it's you. <laughs> wow, that's that. I I, I don't I, I I know that you know it's been a blessing, and it's also been kind of a curse in one sense. You know, I I have been fortunate enough to to be able to move around like that, and and I like the idea that I can get lost in the role. Oh yeah. Uh, but but I mean, I'm not the kind of guy who's going to have my the character name on my door, you know, or uh, are needing the character name in my chair. And even though they do that all the time, I, I mean, I don't, you know, but when I leave the set, I, I don't, you know, if I'm playing, you know, uh, a president or something, if I were playing George Washington, for, for instance, I, I wouldn't need somebody to call me up and say, George, your call tomorrow is at uh, 6 a.m. Mm. You know, <laughs> I, I don't, I'm not one of those guys. I'm, you know, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not I don't mean anything uh, against those guys because, you know, look, I understand Daniel Day-Lewis likes to be called Abe Lincoln when he's playing Abe Lincoln. Mm-hmm. But me, you know, I, I'm, I'm pretty well aware uh, of the difference. And, but I, at the same time, when I'm there and I'm committed to doing what I'm doing, I like to get involved. So you, you put yourself into the character, but you know when to turn it off and to turn it on. Well, you know, I take the clothes off at the end of the day and I put my street <laughs> clothes on and, you know, I, I get in my car and I or I... I uh, go to my hotel room, you know, and I'm driven home by somebody that I work with during the day, and, you know, we talk about silly stuff, you know, yeah. news or football or whatever, you know, I don't know. Yeah. So you're not Uncle Rico the rest of your life? <laughs> no, 
Of course not. Of course not. Although that was, I, that I, that wig was pretty dang cool. I, you know, I, I I truly bought that wig the day after I met Jared Hess because uh, they had just offered me the part, and I went and got the wig, thinking I need to get a an eighties hair hairdo mm-hmm. that deal. So when I showed up with that wig, uh, they were a little bit, um, you know, Jared and and the producers and Jared's wife Jerusha. They were all a little bit really. So we thought bald was kind of cool, and then I kept. They made me put on all the outfits, the wig on and the wig off, and they decided, yeah, okay, the wig's got to stay. Oh, so this was something that you implemented into the character? Oh, absolutely, yeah, 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 yeah. Something I brought, yeah. Hmm. So, so it, what about as far as the uh, uh, around June? What, did you put anything into this character, the the character of Murray that you play, the father of June? It, well, in in the sense, physically, you know, it, it was already established that he has a problem walking and he walks with a cane. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, I, I don't know if there was anything, you know, it's interesting. Drama has such a such a different flair than comedy. And, and, and a lot of times the things that you put into the, those kind of movies are much more personal and perhaps never even revealed. You know, they're, they're things that you use in order to be able to stay focused. And, and, and I'd be honest, I, I I couldn't shoot around June for one extra day. Uh-huh. And not because I was busy doing anything else, but when I was done with that movie, I was so happy to be done with that movie. I, I never wanted to go back there. I, it, was, it, was, it was emotionally draining. It was emotionally hard to be there all the time and to be in that, that frame of mind. Yeah. yeah, There was a kind of a pathos to that that I, I uh, you know, it's, it's, it, there's a darkness that I didn't want to hang there too long. Yeah, 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 and and, and like I say, some of the scenes I saw it, it it's like it, it is a very emotional film, and and you did yeah. you did a great job too. I mean, that's oh my gosh, thank you so much. You know, I mean, that, so I'll pay you later. <laughs> 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 now, in around June, it, it's um, it's an independent film, which yep. usually means, of course, that uh, you have a faster shooting schedule and all of that because of the money and everything. Yeah. Uh, do you do you enjoy the freedom that independent films gives you, though, as far as compared to a major studio film? I would absolutely say yes. There's no uh, question I, that I felt a perfect example is I could I could put this side to side with say a film like get shorty mm-hmm. where you know when i got the role in get shorty of ronnie wingate you know my agent at the time called me and said you don't you have to understand something john this doesn't happen you were the 200th guy they you know around that number that they saw you know i was like the last guy to go in after weeks i mean they saw matthew mcconaughey they saw steve buscemi they saw a lot of well-known people Mm-hmm. And, and I'm sure there are plenty, plenty more on the list. Uh, but I went in there, and there was something that I did that I knew was different. And I got the job. Now, fast forward to shooting the movie. I tried to, uh, you know, implement those same things that got me the job. Mm-hmm. And I think that Barry Sonnenfeld was so... Uh, Stressed because of the studio, because of the, the caliber of stars that were all assembled to make this movie, uh, that he did not want me. To, and the, the character that I had brought forth was a little off, and he took a little bit of time with everything he said. 
and and Barry basically took that away from me. He came and said, "Don't don't do it that way. Do it, let, we can't do it the way you did it on the reading." But I'm like, well, wait a minute. That that's what got me the job. That's what <laughs> set me apart, and that's what I went home when I got this job over the it was a Christmas holiday, and I worked on. I really, really worked on it so that when I and when I came and did it in rehearsal on the read through, I did it that way, and people loved it and they laughed. And then when we got on set, it got taken away from me. And I think that that was directly attributable to the pressure. That, that the studio and that the that the star system and everything else that everybody was under it never felt like a completely fun and relaxed time. I always felt like there was this sense of like I don't know I, you know because I was like the no name in the group of you know Mount Rushmore at that particular right, point. Right, yeah, John Travolta and uh, <laughs> everybody Steve else. Hackman and, right. and Delroy Lindo and and uh, you know. Uh, and on and on and on. Yeah. Beth Midler and, and, and Danny DeVito and Dennis Farina. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, I, you know, I just, I had to acquiesce. But, you know, looking looking at the, the performance in, in Get Shorty, it, it falls way, way short of what I know it could have been. Yeah. And if it had been an independent film, that performance would have, would have been on screen. Huh. And now... And Working on a film like that with such huge stars, do you feel ever feel intimidated by being? I think uh, oh, absolutely, and I think that anybody who says they don't feel intimidated, mm-hmm. uh, uh, they're crazy. You know, yeah. they're crazy because I think even Dennis Farina was intimidated by working with Gene Hackman. Oh, yeah. I could tell by the way he was so deferential on the set that actually working with Dennis Farina for me comfortable because he was kind of like what the heck you know <laughs> there was a sense of like all of a sudden when i saw him acting that way i was like hey you're just like me you know <laughs> you and me both <laughs> exactly you know yeah. and god knows i'm sure everybody you know we're all just human beings so when you get on the set at the end of the day that's the hardest thing to recognize like wait, wait, wait we're all just we're all just human beings here we're we're all just people we all have the same worries day in and day out. We all get hungry. We all got to sleep. We all got to eat. We all want love. We all, you know, right, it's all yeah. tough, you know. Yeah. Um, um, but nonetheless, um, you know, it, it helps. I, I'm going to break away into another story. I happen to have another film that's coming out that just came out in Texas called um, Deep in the Heart. And oddly, I, it's another um dramatic film and I'm the lead in that film I play a guy named uh, Richard Walrath and it's based on somebody's life story and long story short John Voigt came down to help promote the film even though he's not in the film uh, and um, you know for me to sit and have John Voigt you know over lunch tell me stories and I'm not dropping names here but there's a point because John Voigt is, is, is an icon oh yeah I mean he's an icon to hear him tell me the story of how he got Midnight Cowboy. I didn't ask him to tell me the story, mind you. He just wanted to tell the story because there was a young actress from Texas, a very talented young actress, um, and she you know, was torn between coming to Los Angeles, and even though she's very, very young, she has a baby, and, you know, long story short. But John went into this incredibly detailed story about getting that job 
and it was through hearing that story that made him so much more accessible to me. It was almost as if I, I could hear myself saying, I wish I'd, I'd heard this story from John Boyd to me directly years ago, mm-hmm. because there might have been uh, quite a few more times where I was working with actors that, that uh, would otherwise have intimidated me yeah. that wouldn't have because yeah. I would understand, hey, they're, they, you know, they, they're hustling too. They're just, it, it's tough, you know, it's tough. Uh-huh. And everybody who's earned their position, whether they're a big movie star or they're, you know, a character actor like myself, they've had to fight a good fight to get to where they are. Right. And they understand that, that you know, it, it helps. It helps to understand that we're really all in the same mud pit slogging it out, you know. Yeah. Yeah, but like you said, you, you know, you, Gene Hackman, you were working with it. You know, you, it's like, wow, I'm working with Gene Hackman. And yeah. uh, I was talking to somebody uh, just today, and I said, I'm going to have John Grise on the show, and he was Uncle Rico, and the guys, Uncle Rico, wow, I got to hear that. <laughs> so, oh, cool. You know, everybody, you, uh, you know, they, everybody has a, a level of, uh, of respect, or I don't know what you want to call it, but you know, uh, for every actor out there, I mean. Yeah, I I, I totally get it. And, and, you know, the funny thing is is that I'm sure, like myself, every actor out there, with the exception of Ben Kingsley, but every actor out there, and I'll tell you why I'm saying Ben Kingsley, but every actor out there probably doesn't recognize, oh, yeah, they they think they like me, you know? Mm -hmm. I mean, you know what I mean? I'm not that self-aware, you know? I'm like, I'm just a regular guy. In fact, I've had arguments with people driving in the car, and then, the guy's like, is that how you act on a set? You know, I'm like, oh, no. I'm just a guy. I'm just mad at you for cutting me off. Come on. Right. Why do you have to bring that up? You know? <laughs> that doesn't exist out here. This is different. You know? So, I mean, I, you know, and I said ben, ben Kingsley because one night I was at a dinner party with a bunch of people and he was there. And, God, you know, I, he... he he is treated like royalty, but he also acts like royalty. Let me put it that way. <laughs> uh, yeah. Okay. <laughs> I know what you mean. <laughs> yeah. So. Yeah. Uh, so, with around June, how did you you become involved with the film? Uh, James Savoca, the director, writer. Uh-huh. Yep, yeah, James. Yeah. Actually, uh, made an offer, and then uh, I read the script. You know, after getting an offer, I always read the script. I never. I'm not one of those actors who gets an offer and then relies on somebody else to read it and say, nah, you don't want to do this. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, um, I've only made that mistake once in my life because I was so busy working and an offer came in and it came in on the day and it was like, you got to read it now. And I was like, I can't, I can't read it. I'm working. I can't, I can't walk away while I'm shooting. So please you read it and you tell me and they read it and they said, yeah, let's do it. And then of course it was, it, I, I'm going to, leave the the name of the film out but it was a nightmare and it was a horrible film it was a horrible experience and so and a lesson learned never if they offer it and they're telling you you got to make the decision now then i'm just not if i'm working i'm not going to make that decision you know yeah. they're going to have to go somewhere else but but um uh james and i got on the phone and we had a long conversation and james is james is very savvy very articulate uh real filmmaker he really is he's a, he's like a new york filmmaker even though he this was shot in san francisco and he was up in san francisco mm-hmm. i know he's originally from the east coast and he he just he has he reminds me of of you know like a like a 
Sidney Pollock or a Sidney Lumet or, you know, like a younger version of those guys or, or, or Samuel Fuller or somebody like that. He, he doesn't strike me as, as like uh, the, the modern uh, filmmaker. He, mm-hmm. he very much. And so, there, you know, my father was a filmmaker from that era. Right, and yeah. There was a great comfort immediately from talking to him. I was like, this guy knows his, his crap. And, and then, of course, when we sat down and we met each other, I was like, God, you even look the part. It's just ridiculous. So, <laughs> hmm. so, and he did a great job. I mean, yeah. he really was, He's a you know, you want to find somebody who's sensitive enough to stay in it with you, that doesn't get distracted, doesn't lose his focus, you know, and knows what he wants. I mean, you know, that's all any actor could ask for of a director is just, just know what you want. Yeah. Know where you're going with this so that we're, you know, it's great to discover together, but at the same time, you know, the directors that I've had to spend time discovering with who really know what they want in the end, it, it doesn't feel like you're trying to figure stuff out. It feels like you're just, you're, you're collaborating and discovering together. Yeah. I've worked with a couple of directors who don't know what they want, and they only know what they don't want. And so they just they have you do it a bunch of different ways, and they're trying to figure out, you know, they can't really articulate it. And that's only happened a couple of times, but that's really, really obnoxious. You would think that they would have it in their head already that of what they're looking for before they even set foot on this on the set. You know, it's amazing how some directors, I think, they focus much. I mean, I listen, I directed my first film, and there's definitely, I can attest to this, that, that there are some characters in a story that they will focus more on, not to sound like I'm saying more on, right. but more <laughs> with <Right. laughs> than other characters. And, and I definitely uh, um, went through that, where I, I didn't have as much invested in certain characters in, in the film, and and therefore, I, you know, was not necessarily didn't know what I wanted from them. I wasn't to the point where I didn't know what I wanted to do or where I, where I was supposed to go. But I was, you know, just looking at them and seeing where they were going with it, and 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 validating it and saying, yeah, that's 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 exactly right. Let's move on, you know. Yeah, yeah. With, with that, but sometimes, you know, it's it's. Uh, I understand it's harder. You know, they're not always going to be totally invested in, especially if you're not like one of the main characters, because that becomes the, the, the central focus for everybody. You know? Yeah, yeah. Now, with with James in uh, around June, he was the, the director, but he also helped co-write the, the film. Do you think yeah. a, a director who has written the film or co-written the film has a better oh. insight to the film already? I would say that's a fifty-fifty deal. Uh-huh. I've worked with, with guys who've written their film who I felt I couldn't believe that they didn't understand what they had written. Yeah. <laughs> you, know, some, you know, sometimes it's amazing. It's, but, but you know, these, you know, writing, really good writing, sometimes it's like channeling. Sometimes these guys don't really understand the width and breadth of what they're doing. Mm-hmm. It just you know, comes they, to them. <laughs> it comes to them. And then when you, who, you know, you, uh, you being, meaning the actor. Right. Uh, or the reader, I should just say, have to interpret what they've written, and you start to get the bigger meanings, and you start to get the subliminal, and subtextual, and the depth of what they have and in, in what they're writing. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it rings so true, and then you start to talk to them about it. It's funny, sometimes you'll get like, I, 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 I don't know, I thought I was just a little more simple about it. I was like, no, 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 no. <laughs> there's a huge theme here, you know, there's a much, much deeper theme here. 
yeah. a, a universal, uh, almost metaphysical theme. And I'm not, you know, I'm not a crystal cruncher. I'm not one of these people that's like going to be like, you know, reading a tarot card when I'm breaking down a script. You know what I mean? <laughs> I, I'm not. I don't. I don't overanalyze it. But I'm. But I definitely know how to interpret a script. Yeah. Now, you mentioned about taking a role that didn't turn out the way you had hoped. Have you ever refused a role and then regretted it later? You know, like, did you ever, you know, not take Star Wars or something? <laughs> you know, I, 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 actually, I, I, there's a couple roles that I've refused to take that were not necessarily, it wasn't that the roles were such standout roles or so uh, monumental, but what I think that happened by not taking the roles is that I alienated myself from some from people that that you know went and bent over backwards to offer me the role and then I said no uh-huh. you know David Fincher is a perfect example he offered me a role in Fight Club and I I just said no I can't do it and you know he that I, I don't think that David Fincher would ever probably consider me again for a film mm-hmm. because yeah. of that yeah um, you know there were personal extenuating circumstances that, that that forced me to say no, but you know he doesn't know that, and right. you know, I, and so that's happened a couple of times with some pretty pretty you know significant directors. I know that Martha Coolidge offered me a part in a in a film that she'd done after we'd done Real Genius together, and it was a big part. But at the same time, I was rehearsing a play that was being directed by Rutger Hauer, and Rutger Hauer was saying, "Look, you can't take this." role, any other role. You just have to stay with this play because you're the only person that can do this role. And then, of course, the, the he went away to shoot a Guinness commercial for four days, and the offer came, and I turned the movie down. Huh. And uh, Martha Coolidge was just beside herself, livid, because I also read for the film, too. I went in and read for the movie, and then she, I didn't give the best reading, and she fought for me and offered me the part, and I turned it down. And um, made her look bad, and I didn't realize the significance of what I'd done. But I'd alienated not only somebody that I respected and that I'd worked with, but a friend. And we—it it wasn't like we were enemies after that. She actually came and saw the play, but you know, it it um, it, it it caused a strain that I don't think was reparable. Right? Know? Yeah. Yeah. Hmm. Now you mentioned earlier about your father being a uh, a director, and he was quite a famous director too. Um, yeah. Did is that what made you decide you wanted to become an actor and get in the business, or was there something else that brought you into the business? Well, you know, I guess initially, I don't know. You know, it's like if I think of my father as a shoemaker, I probably would be making shoes, I imagine, or want to do something with shoes, whether mm-hmm. I'm, you know, taking pictures of them or making them. Yeah. But um, I. Uh, yeah, I wanted to be a filmmaker. I mean, that's really what I wanted to do. And then an odd confluence of events, when I was nine years old, I had knocked my tooth out on a playground, you know, goofing around on a playground. And my, We had just moved to L.A. from New York, and my father was directing a movie at Paramount. And it was his first big feature. At that point, he had been doing a lot of television stuff, and he'd won an Emmy Award doing a television show, and... And so this was his foray into the feature film world, and he was doing a film with Charlton Heston called Will Penny. Penny, yes. Yep. And so he uh, picked me up at the dentist and brought me to the studio with him 
as opposed to taking me all the way. We were living by the beach, and he didn't want to take me all the way back out to the beach. So I went with him to the studio and got to miss school for the rest of the day. And and while he was racing, uh, he was at the typewriter just trying to get the latest draft of his film done. And I was trying to talk to him, and he uh, finally said, look, you you got to go out the Bonanza Street, which is what they called the... Uh, the Western Street on Paramount is, is empty today. Nobody's shooting there. Go out there and play. Don't break anything. Don't steal anything. You know, they always have the props in the windows that look like old matchboxes and, and or cans of food. And it looked and it was really old stuff. You know, it looked really cool. Mm-hmm. You know, in the old mercantile stores and yeah. stuff like you know. So, um, uh, not that I was a thief or anything, but you know, he just <laughs> didn't want me to mess with anything and and just stay out of trouble. And um, I said, okay, and I just kind of wandered away, and <clears throat> as I was walking out of the office building, at, you know, he was in a little structure with little offices, and right. there was yeah. a reception, and I was walking out, and these two men were walking in, and it turns out they were the producers of the film, and they said, hey, are you here with Tommy? And I said, yeah, and then they took me into their office, and of course they realized that he was my dad, and they got me a Coca-Cola. At that time, I wasn't allowed to drink sodas, you know, my parents were about too much sugar. They didn't want anybody to have too much sugar. Anyway, so I was drinking a Coke, and they were talking to me about all kinds of different things, and then yeah, I could hear my father literally through the wall typing, and because, uh, you know, those typewriters were loud, those right. electric typewriters, and, and they called him on the intercom, and they said, hey, Tom, uh, come on in here. We want to show you. We got the kid. And and sure enough, my father comes running in, and he was like looking at me and going, wait, wait, wait a minute, wait a minute. Not, not him. He's not an actor. He's an idiot. (laughs) John, I told you to stay out of trouble. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. How did you get into here? Why are you drinking a Coke? He didn't really care as much as my mom about sodas. But nonetheless, um, they convinced him to screen test me. And then I got the job. And and truly, even after I tested that, he came home to my mother and said, don't worry, not a chance. And they called him the next day when all the tests were in and, and he came in and looked at him, and then he called my mom and said, you better get down here. And she looked, and then she said, I'm going to negotiate the deal. So that was my first acting experience. Wow. And to me, it was it was an amazing experience, more so because I got to go and be, go away and be with my dad. You know, right. family yeah. of four boys, you're always kind of vying for the attention, especially when your dad's always gone working, you know. Yeah, yeah. So yeah. it was a great thing for me to have. And then... But afterwards, I wanted to just be a normal guy. I didn't, you know, I hated being treated special. I didn't, I just wanted to blend in. And um, lucky for me, I think, because had I, had I really enjoyed that sense of kind of modicum of celebrity that as a kid you get where everybody's paying attention to you. It's like I had three older brothers and they were all kicking my ass and I did not want to stand out, you know. Mm -hmm. I wanted to be just like one of them. I didn't want to be anybody else. I just wanted to be like one of my brothers. And and, uh, I got offered a role in the Cowboys with John Wayne and I turned it down. Uh, And I got offered the Reavers with Steve McQueen and I turned it down. I turned down a lot of work, uh, Bless the Beast and the Children. And... um, I just, I really was certain that that I, and the offers came until I was 13, and I just turned everything down, and then um, I guess when I was about to 18 or 17, I was going out with a girl who was a model, 
and she was a young model, and she was doing commercials and stuff. And one day I was on the set with her, and I was thinking, you know, this could be a good way to make a living. I mean, you know, this is, I know this. this mm-hmm. I've seen this before. You know, this is kind of cool, and yeah. she's doing it. And, you know, now I could probably enjoy doing it, whereas when I was a kid, I did not want to have anything to do with it. So I decided to study, and uh, I went to New York to study acting with Stella Adler. Uh-huh. And just said, "Me, don't do anything. I'll go and do it on my own." And I lived out of a suitcase, and I worked as a busboy, and I was studying with Stella Adler. And of course, that was during that time that my father passed away. So yeah. it was like you know, the preparation, you know, the the hard living that I thought that I was doing to to prove that I was going to do it on my own, and everything else was really a precursor to how hard living was going to become. That I was really not. There was nobody gonna gonna have my back, you know. Right. In Hollywood, when you're gone, you're gone, you know. So, mm, yeah. wasn't like, uh, you know, oh, you're Tom Grise's son. Let's open the doors for you, and you know, and here here it goes. No. Yeah. No, he was he was gone, and I had to I had to start from the bottom. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Well, and you worked with your father in uh, Helter Skelter also, right? Yeah, that, that was actually, he, he made me read for that part, and then he said, uh, he gave, got my SAG card, and he said, okay, you got your SAG card? Go get yourself an agent, and don't ask for another goddamn thing from me. <laughs> Basically, those were his words. Yeah. I'm not gonna, if you're expecting anything from me, you are not getting it from me. Yeah. And I, and I totally appreciate that now, because right. there were some kids that I grew up with whose fathers were also in the business, and they, they, they spent their lives, to this day, relying on their, on their parents to right. give, yeah. give them. And, and they're hamstrung, and they're, they're, they're not, uh, they're, they never realized their full potential. You know? yeah. yeah, yeah. Was it difficult working for your father? You know, I mean, was there a good separation between father and actor and, and that type of thing? Well, when I was a kid, I was, I was a kid. You know, it was a different thing. I was... I, I was so invested in, in the film without even realizing that I was invested in the film. Yeah. I mean, I, I was playing make-believe, but, but I, I knew what the story was, and I, and I didn't understand what a character was, or I didn't understand what acting was, but I knew that I could make-believe what the circumstances were at that moment when we were shooting it, so yeah. I could commit to doing whatever we were doing. It was like a game, you know. I was totally unstudied, and I think that's what they liked about me, you know. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, but as, when I was older and I worked with my dad, it was a little more difficult because I could sense that he, he, you know, I don't think he was going to feel pressure by putting me in that movie as, from the outside because there was 186 speaking roles in that movie. But I think he was feeling pressure to see me perform in front of the camera after not doing it since I was a little kid and now being like a young adult, having to give something and and really be committed and do this thing and you know listen it, I imagine if I were him and 
my son was doing it, and let's say I sucked. How do you say to him, look, kid, you got to go do something else? Right. <laughs> I mean, how do you get to, you know, either go study or you got to go start looking to do something else? I don't think you should do this. This could be a really rough go for you. Yeah, yeah. You know? And he and if believe me, if he thought so, he would have said so. Yeah. Huh. So I think that he probably had that kind of pressure on him. Was like, oh God, I hope my kid can do this. <laughs> you know. Yeah, yeah. Now with Will Penny, you said you were nine or ten years old. Nine, yeah. Nine. At that age, did you realize? I mean, you're you're working with Charlton Heston, and uh, let's see, who else? What Donald Pleasance was in that. Donald uh, Bruce Dern. Bruce Dern, uh, Slim ben Pickens. Johnson. Yeah, Ben Johnson, Slim Pickens. Lee Majors. Uh, uh, introducing Lee Majors. Right. Anthony Zerby was in it. Yes, and, yeah. Uh, Joan Hackett, who really, I got to credit, a, a huge amount of of my uh, being involved and being committed to whatever those, like I said, those circumstances were due to her because she she worked with me tirelessly. She really, really brought, yeah. me, brought me in. Yeah, I would. I, you know, I we we stayed at the best Western motel, uh, all of us uh, in Bishop, California, and, and she would say, "Come to my room," and I we we'd get like you know food, and we'd both be lying in or on her bed watching television. Then we turn off the TV, and she'd sit there and read through the script with me. The next day, scene. This is stuff that nobody'd asked her to do, as far as I know. This is stuff I think that she wanted to do herself, wow. and we had a really close relationship. We had a very close relationship, and she really did become like a surrogate mother. You know? oh. But did you realize the amazing group of actors that you were working with at that time? I mean, that, no. that, that's quite a I, cast. I, I, I really, I, I was one of the more oblivious kids. And maybe because I was raised around it, that I never knew any of I mean, I knew who they were, I guess, and I knew I was... I guess I, I I saw other people see them and become completely beside themselves. I mean, literally like a gog. When Charlton Heston walks down the street of a small town in 1967, and you know these people were screaming and pulling at their hair as if it was like Beatles or something. You know, they they got out of control. And and I remember seeing that walking on our way to a restaurant one night. A bunch of us, were, you know, my father and Charlton Heston and Joan Hackett and and Slim Pickens, and we were walking down the street, and um, I just remember seeing two women in a phone booth when they saw uh, Heston walk by, completely lose their, their their junk, you know? And and I remember looking back at them, and then looking at him, and then looking back at him, and looking at him, and thinking, that's so strange. It's so weird that that happens. But yet, you know, I mean, if, if at that moment, if if Batman walked in the room or whatever, you yeah. know, I'd have been like, oh, my God. Yeah. Well, so, well, speaking of that, now now your father actually directed several episodes of Batman, right? The TV he show? did, yeah. yeah. Now, did you happen to go to the set or anything like that? Because, I mean, you were about that age when that yeah. you were probably watching the show. Oh, yeah. I went to the set. I remember a couple of times going to the set when my father was directing the show. And I remember... Um, I remember not liking Burt Ward, <laughs> Robin. but you know, I I could have got him on a bad day, mm-hmm. and I, you know what I mean. But I just was a kid, and I was gonna go with my impression at that moment. But I I remember I I Burt Ward, uh, you know, was 
having a bad day and he was griping about this and griping about that. And I was like, I hate that guy. <laughs> but I was a kid, you know? Right, yeah, kid. yeah. So, yeah, I was wondering when I saw that, that uh, connection there, if you had, being a kid at that age that was watching that show, did you ever go down there? I was, I was just curious about that. You know, um, are you familiar with an actor named Akim Tamirov? Did you know who he was? Uh, if you ever saw, he was actually in Casablanca. He, 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 he was a character actor who, who was always playing the gypsy guy, you know, kind of on, with Universal and, and Warner Brothers. He was one of their big uh, character actors and really started out in the 30s and the 40s. And Anyway, my father, in, in, at the end of Akim Tamirov's career, he was actually kind of going senile. My father put him in 100 Rifles, the film that he was doing. Mm-hmm. With Jim Brown and Burt Reynolds and Raquel Welch, Raquel Welch big, yes, big western. Yeah, and they were shooting in a little mountain town called Palopus, and uh, it was very hot. And this town had no electricity and no running water. It was a beautiful little town, uh, and this was, of course, back in the '60s. And there, there were still places like this in some of the remote areas in Spain. And, you know, people washed their clothes in the town, in the center of town. You know, they, they, there was a, a place where the water came out, and they would wash there. And 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 the bar was like a, a everything looked like white, uh, you know, uh, I don't know, it almost looked like a Greek villa, but it was in, and it was a Greek name, Pelopus, but it was in Spain. So it might have, who knows, it might have been a Greek settlement or something. Uh, anyway, we were shooting there, and I remember it was hot that they were shooting, and I crawled into a, um, a stable with the, there were donkeys, and I went to sleep. And uh, I woke up, I guess, hours later, and I got up, and everybody was gone. Everybody had left. And this was about three hours or two and a half hours from the town that we were all staying in. Wow. Dry. And I was wandering around this town, and there were all these women dressed in black, and it was very eerie. And... They kept saying, you know, El Nino Perdido, the lost boy. They kept saying, that's the lost boy, and I'm wandering around. And, you know, it, it turns out my father thought that I jumped in another car heading back to the, the hotel in, in, in uh, Granada and Spain. And my mother thought that I was with my dad, and, you know, my brothers didn't even care. And <laughs> sure enough, I was in this little town. And I wandered into the little square. And when I say a little town, I mean, it's tiny. The buildings are like hovels. They're little tiny mm-hmm. buildings with Dutch doors and uh, and low, low ceilings, almost like thatched roofs on top of, uh, you know, not adobe, but like adobe, but it's whitewashed. You know, everything was whitewashed and the roof, there was no streets. It was all dirt, like cobbly kind of roads. And I walked into the town square and there's one car sitting there and, it was one of the driver's cars, and I hear this booming voice, and sure enough, it's Akim Tamirov, and he is in this bar with all the men, a lot of men from the town. And there's a table, uh, the, the bar it consists of two barrels and a board, and they're drinking wine and smoking cigars. And I wander in, and sure enough, Akim Tamirov pulls me up to him, pours me a glass of wine, gives me a cigar. And I think at this time I was 10 years old, and... He ended up uh, spending the, the whole afternoon with me, and then I got—he put me in the back of the car with him, and they drove me back to to the town, you know, to Granada, and and you know, he 
it was just kind of an amazing thing. So whenever I see, you know, he's long dead now, but whenever I see this guy on, on movies, I think, my God, you know, I spend a whole day with this guy, you know. Yeah. Those are the kind of things that to me are more fascinating than, you know, being with movie stars that are well known, you know, because I was around them because my father you right, know, worked yeah. with them. You know. You've been on so many TV shows, like the Jeffersons and uh, Falcon's Crest and Quantum Leap, and it just goes on and on. But, of course, you were in over 80 episodes of The Pretender. Uh, yes. Did you enjoy the constant daily routine of a, of a series TV show regular? Absolutely, uh, because that that particular show was... Uh, it, it was very familial. I mean, we it was really a nice group of people, and... Uh, and really who genuinely liked each other, and I'm talking about across the board, from the drivers to the craft service to the props, wardrobe, everybody, crew and cast, everybody got along very, very well, and uh, it made it uh, so nice to be able to, I, I felt so lucky to have that go and, and, and do that. And, you know, really tales out of school, uh, you know, as far as, making money, a lot of people who get on a series and they become a series regular, they make considerable money. I was being considerably underpaid, and I mean really underpaid, and I'm not going to get into that. I mean, it still was, it it still was, to me, extremely respectable, but, you know, of course, afterwards, when agents and managers and so on and lawyers found out what I had accepted for my pay, they, they were all just gobsmacked. They couldn't believe that I took no... Uh, that I didn't fight for more money, but wow. you know, I, I think that part of the thing was that they uh, they promised me that I was going to be able to direct an episode, and, and they came through with their promise. So I I didn't fight for more money, but and and it, and really, money became secondary to the experience of being on the show and mm-hmm. and working with these people and learning. You know, yeah, yeah. Now Napoleon Dynamite, of course, Uncle Rico, memorable character. Everybody everybody knows. Uh, how did you come about? getting that role well a funny story uh, I had after uh, the pretender was done uh, I I hung it up I stopped acting I was writing and I was very very involved with, with the script that I was writing and I thought well I've saved a little money and I'm going to write this movie and I'm going to make this movie and it was the right time to do that because independent film you know, was was at its heyday, and it was, you know, people were financing movies left and right, and if you had something that was decent, and you could put a decent cast together. And I really wanted to make, excuse me, I wanted to make a movie. And so, um, um, but a, a guy named Jory Weitz, who was casting a film called The Big Empty, uh, had an actor fall out of the film. And Daryl Hannah, who I worked with, we played a married couple in a film called Jackpot, uh, that I co-produced with the Polish brothers, mm-hmm. suggested that I play this character in the movie. And, and so Dory, who also knew my work, called me and he was like, please come and do this movie. Uh, we'll pay you, uh, you know, a couple of bucks, but it'll be a good experience. And it's a film called The Big Empty with John Favreau and Kelsey Grammer and Errol Hanna. Uh, and uh, I can't remember everybody else, but um, um, would you do it? And I went and did it. And, I had a good time, and it was a funny character, a guy named Elron. And what happened was then Jory got involved in Napoleon Dynamite right after that. Uh And they were cutting uh, the Big Empty at 
uh, in an office at 20th Century Fox uh, and Napoleon Dynamite. They had no money and, and they needed to borrow an office. So Jory called the editing, editor's office at, at the Fox and said, could we use your office to cast the movie? And so they ran the casting session there. And from what I understand, they offered the part of Uncle Rico to Jason Lee and he turned it down. And then they didn't know where to go, and Jory White said, I think we should offer it to this guy. And he showed my scenes from The Big Empty, which happened to be right there, available. And they showed the scenes, and they they all laughed, and they said, let's do it. Hmm. So they called out of the blue and offered me the part. And um, that was... and. You know, I guess a lot of people who read the script didn't respond to the script. I couldn't understand how they couldn't respond to it because, to me, the minute I cracked the first page, I, I, I tell you I was laughing out loud, and it must. It, thankfully, I was in a good mood. And it was a good day because it really it, it hit me right in the right spot. And my manager called and said, "They have no money. You know, these guys. I, you don't want to do this." And I read the script and I called them back. I said, "You damn right, I want to do this. This is funny." Now, what was it like? Here it is, eight years later, and they've got you. They've asked you to do the animated TV show version of Napoleon Dynamite. Uh, any hesitation about going and doing that role once again? No, not for a second. No. Uh, again, luckily, I, you know, I I I I'd like to preface how close we all were working together, and you know, that's not always the best thing. I mean, I've been on films where everybody loved each other, but the but there was almost too much love, and it and it and it, and it kind of messed up the drama you know mm-hmm. on the film yeah because there was it got in the way of what was really going on that we were supposed to be doing for the most part you know that was that was when i was much younger and we were kids and it was just a different thing now i i do really appreciate when i get to work on a project where everybody gets along really well and everybody has the same uh focus and the same intended goal by by you know, working towards making the film the best it can be. And I find that to be really common, uh, more common in uh, independent films. And yeah. and so Napoleon Dynamite had... that. That's why, going back to The Pretender, it was a bit of an anomaly. Because a lot of series, you get a lot of problems, attitude, and people get weird, and, and never, never happened on The Pretender. So... Uh, with Napoleon Dynamite, it was almost the, uh, the same kind of thing. Every, it was so fun. It was more like going to summer camp. So, uh, and, and Jared Hess and Jerusha, they're both so talented, and Jared is a very talented director. And when he called and said, hey, we want to do the cartoon, I was like, I'm there. Don't even worry. You know, I'm yeah. there. And everybody came back. So yeah. Yeah. that's a testament to him. Yeah. Now, I know we're going to be finishing up here, but I just want to let everybody know about, uh, you know, you've been in Supernatural recently and, and, and Sons of Anarchy and Psych and Hawaii Five O. Any other new projects you've got coming our way? Well, I have about five films, including Around June, that are all coming out. Uh, three of them, Around June is coming out in, in, in California. Mm-hmm. And then hopefully they'll roll it out to other states. You know, that's how films are being released nowadays. And I have a film called Unicorn City that just came out in Utah. And that is a, a really funny film. And yeah. and uh, and then I have Deep in the Heart that just came out in Texas. So the, the, they're trying to roll that film into a bigger market. Unicorn City had a very good opening weekend. So fingers crossed they roll it out into more theaters. 
Mm. Uh, then I have two other films. One's called Natural... Actually, three other films. One's called Natural Selection, yeah. which won everything last year at South by Southwest. So I'm expecting that that's going to be coming out relatively soon, as well as another film called Five Time Champion, which is a really sweet little movie that I did, uh, also in Texas. And then um, a film I just finished recently called Noobs, N-O-O-B-Z, which yeah. is a very funny movie. So, yeah. I got, you know, there's all, all these. Now, what about Taken? Are you in the sequel? Oh, yeah, I did, I did Taken, too. I forgot. Yeah, I did that, too. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Yeah, so that'll be coming our way. So you, you were busy. We you, we got a lot of things to see you in there. <laughs> there's, yeah, there's a lot of lot of stuff out there. And as I always say to people, you know, when I meet them, and I'm serious when I say this, when they come up to me and they go, "I love your work," I, I always say, "You must watch a lot of television and stay up real late." <laughs> you know, because not that I do a lot of television, but a lot of the movies that I have been in wind up night, late yeah. night on cable. <laughs> right. Yeah. Well, John, I want to finish up with two final questions. Sure. Taking us away from all your acting and everything else uh, around June and everything, your favorite TV shows of all time that you enjoy watching? Oh my gosh! Uh, I, I, my favorite. There was a show when I was a kid that I loved called called Believe It or Not, The New People. I I love that show. That was a great show. <laughs> and that was a that was to me like when I saw the ad for Lost. Originally, when it first came on, yes. I thought, it's the new people. They found the new people, and they're going to make it into the series like the new people, which it, it was nothing like the new people except that they were on an island, and that right. was it. Uh, Lost became this completely other other uh, thing. But um, as a kid, the, that, that particular time in my life was then came Bronson and the new people. Mm-hmm. I would put those two back then. Uh I liked, um, uh, and and more recent stuff that I like. I, you know, I'm I'm, I'm kind of a fan of this uh, Mad Men uh, show. Yes, yeah, yeah. Pretty uh, interesting. I, I, um, you know, I don't watch a lot of TV religiously, but when I when I and and Breaking Bad, I think is a good show. Mm-hmm. I think those, I think that AMC channel is doing some good stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Walking Dead and. I- Yep. Yeah. Yeah, which I saw an episode of that. And uh, you know, and I love any you know, HBO's always been really great. I think Boardwalk Empire is an amazing show and uh, you know. Yeah. Uh yeah. I loved uh, The Sopranos when it was on, you know. Yeah. Yeah. What about movies? What's your favorite movies of all time? You know, there's a there's a few of them uh you know, there are in each genre there's probably different films. I remember when I was very young, uh, I got uh, there was the original Adventures of Baron Munchausen, mm-hmm. uh, which was the Czechoslovakian one. And for some reason, they would play it all the time late at night on TV. And I, and if it was ever on, you better believe I, I like would sneak like my little black and white Sony television set <laughs> in the kitchen and then bring it up in the bedroom and and watch it. I didn't care if it was on at three in the morning. I'd I'd wake up to watch it even though I wasn't allowed to. But um, and you know I I I, I loved. Um, uh, Viva Zapata when I was a kid that those were big films for me as a kid hmm. uh, yeah. um, powerful movies but there's so many I don't know you know like for I, I went through a, the Vietnam period where I was really into reading about Vietnam and you know read Michael Hare's dispatches and and uh, Doc Caputo I've just read so many books but I, I, I thought Apocalypse Now was uh, is, is, 
is a masterpiece. Yeah, and classic. Yeah, yeah. It is a masterpiece. I mean, you you know, I, I've showed that film to younger people now, and they can't believe that that's not there's no CGI in that movie. <laughs> yeah, but that's all choreographed, orchestrated war scenes. That that is not an easy task. I don't know how anybody can do that anymore. Yeah, yeah, it's amazing. Well, John, I want to thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us, and uh, I recommend that everybody, if they get a chance to catch Around June, because it's a fascinating film to watch. And uh, it is, a, it is, isn't it? It's a good film. I mean, it, you know, there's, there's, you're not going to get cheated on that film. You're going to get your money's worth. It's a, it's an engaging movie. It's, it's, you know, it's, it's good drama. It's high quality drama. I think. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, well, thank you very much for taking the time, John. I appreciate it very much. Okay. Thanks so much, Brian. John Grise, want to thank him so much for taking so much time to talk to us and uh, great stories. And he's a fascinating guest, and he does a great job in Around June. You want to check that film out because, uh, like I said earlier, he's, uh, you know, it's a different kind of role for him than what we're used to seeing him in, you know, like Uncle Rico. Uh, this is totally different. It's, it's just uh, he does a great job. He really shows his, his acting ability, and uh, he's, I just can't say enough about the film. So if you get a chance, check it out. And and I also want to thank Randolph, who is the distributor of the film, and James, who is the director of the film, because without them, we wouldn't have been able to do this interview. We were just going back and forth, and, and things just weren't working out. I was you know, talk, trying to get in touch with him. Then I was on vacation. Then he was busy. He was traveling around doing promotions and everything. And uh, we finally connected and I was really beginning to feel like a stalker because I'd, I'd email John, you know, several times and everything, and then I'd call him, and then I'd leave a message because I'd get his message machine, and it'd be like, you know, John, this is Brian. I'll call you later. <laughs> and it was just, I kept doing it. It was like, we finally connected, so uh, so glad that he was able to do it and appreciate it very much. Ah, let's see here. We are getting toward the end of this show, and I uh, want to remind you, if you're on Facebook, go ahead and like us there. If you have something you'd like to talk to us about, email me at feedback at onscreenandbeyond.com, and we will see what we can do about answering your questions, or if you just want to chat, that's fine, too. Also, if uh, you get a chance and you want to check out onscreenandbeyond.com, there's all kinds of things you can do there. You can find out uh, movie reviews and book reviews and DVD reviews and TV on DVD reviews. We've got all kinds of stuff. We've got news. we got everything. Check it out, onscreenandbeyond.com. There's so much there for you to find, and uh, we'd appreciate it that if you are going to be buying something from uh, some of the sponsors we have, just go ahead and click on our site to get to those, and it'll help support the show. So if uh, you're doing a couple of things there, that'll help us out, too. So that is a wrap for this episode of On Screen and Beyond, and until next week when we bring you another fascinating guest and take you on screen and beyond, I'm Brian Zemrak. Take care. Thank you.